This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in African American Studies. I'm your co-host, Nicole Powell. I'm really excited to be here with a very special guest, Dr. William Sturkey, a historian of modern America at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who specializes in the history of race in the American South. I'm especially looking forward to talking to him as his newest work, Hattiesburg, an American City in Black and White, takes a deep dive into the central role of Hattiesburg, Mississippi during the Exbellum Reconstruction, Jim Crow, and Civil Rights Eras. And I have a particularly close relationship to Hattiesburg as my grandmother moved from Hattiesburg to Los Angeles in 1956. So this work is particularly impactful for me, I'm sure countless others. So Dr. Sturkey, thank you for being here and speaking more with me about your work. Thank you so much for having me. So um, the first question I'll ask is just why was it important for your work to centralize Hattiesburg and our historical understanding of the U.S. South? And why do you think this complex history is important for readers? So the reason that Hattiesburg was important um, was because it was one of many sites that was very active in the civil rights movement. And I really think for the for my goal in the book, I was trying to do kind of one big thing, and that was explain where the civil rights movement came from in many of these communities like Hattiesburg. And the reason that I chose Hattiesburg was because of its incredible nature of activism in 1964. On the, on the first... Um, on July 2nd, 1964, was the first day of Freedom School in Hattiesburg. It's this incredible scene. Over 600 kids show up to Freedom School. There's an 82-year-old man among the kids, and they come in clapping and singing, and they're just so anxious to join the movement, and they're even unlocking doors to sneak their peers into Freedom School. And then I sat down and I thought about, okay, in communities like this where the movement just exploded in the mid-'60s, what happened before that? Where did the where did this energy come from? Where did the buildings come from that house um, events like the Hattiesburg Freedom School? And so it was one of many sites I think I could have chosen to help answer that question. And so stepping back from that first day of Freedom Schools in 1964, I was very interested in learning where the energy came from that made that moment possible, where the buildings came from, who actually laid the brick and mortar of the church wasn't about the period before that that enabled the civil rights movement to land in a place like Hattiesburg like it did. And of course, Hattiesburg is just one of many places across the American South where the movement did explode by the mid-1960s. So I know that the work talks about two different families, one black and one white. So why was it important to tell the narratives of those two different perspectives? So... (laughs) Part of my approach here is that I really wanted to study the entirety of Jim Crow. 
there are a lot of authors um, who make, you know, for, for very good reasons to pick one particular topic, and they study that topic sort of horizontally, if you will. They'll look at a period of time, and they'll study that topic in several places. I wanted to really look at sort of more of a vertical story, basically, to study what Jim Crow looked like in one place across a broad period of time, and if you incorporated the perspectives of, of white Southerners. So in terms of um, the book, it, is, it has a biracial structure. So the chapters alternate between the white and the black communities, and I tell the stories of each community through representative members of each community. And something that I, I realized when I was in graduate school, you know, quite a while ago now, that the way that especially people who focused on African-American history talked about white actors was just not quite right. It was always sort of the nameless, faceless, you know, evil, evil sort of Klansmen types who really didn't have, who were really flat. They didn't change, they didn't have motivations, they were just these racist white folks. And I really wanted to probe more deeply into the motivations and the realities facing um, white Southerners and to think about how that affected Jim Crow because they were very much, they were as much a part of the system as Jim Crow as African Americans were. And with the African American perspective, I knew that I could tell the story about the broader changes in the community, and that'd be a really interesting thing to do. But I thought that it would go to another level if I was able to do that through one particular family. And so even though there are sort of major holes in how you can study African Americans living in the Jim Crow South in the early 20th century or in the late 19th century, I found it really powerful to, to use this one particular family to talk about especially how their perceptions changed over time, going from the patriarch who was born into slavery to his sons and then to some of the younger people that they began to interact with as the decades wore on and their lives began to change. And is there a particular reason why you chose that specific family? So with the African-American sor um, sources, it really does feel like writing in a different genre than white sources. So the black community, for example, um, lived in a floodplain. And so many of the artifacts in the black community have been exposed to all sorts of weather conditions that people in the white community um, didn't have to face. Of course, that's exactly why the black community existed where it did in the first place. And so in terms of sources, African-Americans were segregated, uh, both in terms of the local newspaper. So, you know, I couldn't find stories about African-Americans in 1924, except in certain cases, usually when they were um, being arrested or, or murdered in some cases. Um, and then they also, of course, didn't, they couldn't deposit their papers in the, in the archives, you know, until really the 70s. And so it really felt like a very different experience. And looking at what was available to me is ultimately what led me to choose that particular family. I was very fortunate enough to find an interview with one of the sons from 1982. And this guy in 1982 was just talking to these old black folks. And one of the sons really laid out the story, this intergenerational story of his family's arrival and lives in Hattiesburg. And that really gave me the entree to then go in, into the documents and really check and see if I could follow their path. And that's where that, that really came from. But I think it really um, enabled the story to deliver a little bit more of an intimate view into how African-Americans in the Jim Crow South were living beyond the standard sort of victimization narratives that we often hear. Another thing that kept recurring as a motif while I was reading is the train or the railroad. 
So the, the railroad employs Captain William Hardy, um, who's Hattiesburg's founder. And on his first visit to Hattiesburg, the railroad historically also employed most of Hattiesburg's population, and it also leads exploits of Black Hattiesburgers up north, away from like, the racist violence of the South. Could you speak more about the role of the railroad in Hattiesburg and in our historical understanding of the U.S. South more broadly? Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about turn of the century, late 19th century, early 20th century black history, it often looks pretty grim. And, you know, it's the years after Reconstruction. It's what Rayford Logan labeled the nadir of black life. And there's very good reason, you know, the rise of lynching, rise of segregation, um, different things like that. Um, but I think there's nothing more central to that story than the railroads. And so the railroads, of course, are, are where segregation laws, Jim Crow or segregation laws are pioneered and defended. Of course, we all know the story of Plessy versus Ferguson being rooted in that railroad. There are many blues songs about the railroads. And um, there are a lot of African-American workers who are killed working for the railroads, um, especially convict laborers. But I think that if you take a broader view and you look at the action and the agency of African-Americans and you think about the railroads, then what we see are black men, especially who are able to take railroad jobs that enable them to pursue a life off of the farm and potentially away from the sharecropping agreement. And we also see the railroads becoming a mode of exodus. And so the railroads can take you not only from the south to the north, but even from the rural south to the urban south or even the small town south. And so a lot of the characters in my book, a lot of the people who come to Hattiesburg and live in that black community are people brought there by the railroads, which also open up a whole other host of industries that are connected to railroad transportation. And so I see that the railroads are creating a lot of opportunities for African-Americans in Hattiesburg. And that's really the genesis of why black people start to move there in the first place. And then ultimately, a few chapters into the book, the railroad becomes the site of the Great Migration. So half of chapter four is about the Great Migration. And, you know, we rightfully so do often think of the Great Migration as being a northern story. You know, the Great Migration is all about Chicago and Philadelphia and Detroit, etc. And that's true. But the Great Migration is also very much a southern story, of course, as well. And many of those people who participate in that Great Migration, the train was essential to their ability to get away from the South and Jim Crow. And many of them were brought to the urban South first on the train, and they left the South entirely on a train. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I think it is true that your book really does complicate that narrative of the great migration being only black folks fleeing from violence and going from Midwest to Northeast to the West Coast. But instead we see like black folks from other parts of Mississippi coming to ha- migrating to Hattiesburg for economic opportunity or people to Chicago and then coming back. So I think it's really cool that it's that narrative. Yeah, and then even on top of that, part of the Great Migration story is what happens 
in the places where the people left. So in Hattiesburg, you know, because the white people are so desperate to try and stop the migration, this exodus, they build a new high school for African Americans. They pass a major referendum and build a new high school. And it very much affects um, African American life in Hattiesburg, even for those who stay. So another another thing that struck me while reading the work was that despite the white supremacist terrorism that Black Hattiesburgers continuously lived under, um, like when they first organized their Negro Fair, they hosted a White Citizens Day to serve and include Hattiesburg's white residents. And despite all the you know the terrorism that they were facing and the violence that they were facing, they still believed in that sort of intra-communal race relation. So that was really interesting to me. Um, why do you think? That type of, why do you think that was necessary or they chose to include that day? Sure, yeah. So, especially after the Great Migration, around the early 1920s, African Americans emerged as sort of more of a force to be um, reckoned with, not in terms of necessarily taking power away from white people, but that they had a lot more agency that white people couldn't completely control. They could get up and leave, namely. And so what happened was a lot of the black professional, um, especially men, because they really, you know, women were subjugated in both communities, but especially the white men and the leading black professional men began to develop more of a relationship where they would work together. And so the leading white professional men did not want black working class folks to leave. And so one of the things they started to do was they started to ask the leading black professional men, okay, are there some things that we can do to make life here a bit better so that people aren't fleeing to the north all of the time. And so one of those things that they did was they started to work to improve the school a little bit more. And so African Americans could not go in and just, you know, demand this and that, demand equality. They weren't positioned enough to do that, largely because they couldn't vote. And because of the threat of that violence, if you did promote racial equality, but they were able to get some things here and there, and they're pretty savvy about doing so. And so anytime there was a community uplift program, especially related to the schools, um, African-Americans would often invite local white civic leaders in and use that opportunity to help raise some money, either by selling food or offering a performance or giving them tickets to some sort of a sporting event or something like that, and trying to use those dollars then to build the, the black um, schools. Okay, so that, that leads to one of the other questions that I had, basically, which was, um, so while white Hattiesburgers enjoyed some of the fruits of the New Deal, um, funding their social organizations and their different institutions, black organizations, like you said, did receive some funding from different white benefactors, but mostly it came through community organizing and them fundraising amongst themselves. So I was wondering if you could speak more about that and the importance of that sort of community organizing to black Hattiesburg in the left. Yeah. So throughout much of the 20th century in Hattiesburg, and this is something that, that goes back to me for, for quite a long time, I, I always wondered about this, you know, there's this notion in the 1950s after Brown versus Board that the North, Northerners and the Supreme Court are infringing on the Southern way of life, they like to call it, the white Southern way of life. And I always wondered exactly how that might work in terms of access to resources and something that I've been able to study here and um, demonstrate these patterns of are the ways that it wasn't necessarily that, North, that they didn't want Northerners involved in Southern life. They were begging for Northerners to provide resources and for the federal government to provide resources 
throughout the entirety of Jim Crow. The Southern way of life, what it actually was, was it was white people consolidating those outside resources among their own race and blocking African Americans from accessing both those outside resources and federal guarantees to citizenship, namely the 14th and 15th Amendment. And so, especially during the Great Depression and World War II, white Hattie's burgers were just clamoring over themselves to gain access to resources provided by the New Deal, especially the WPA funding and the CCC. Meanwhile, African Americans, because they couldn't vote, they couldn't apply for those same programs. So at the very same exact time that the white high school gets a $50,000 grant to build a new gym, which is only used by white people, um, African Americans are building a playground for their community that is only capitalized for a few hundred dollars. And so one of the remarkable things that we see here are black people who don't have access to the resources provided by the federal government because they can't vote are then able to pull together resources from the community in multi-year efforts in order to build things in their own neighborhoods, which is just remarkable considering the incredible disadvantages that they had. Had they had access to federal resources like the white citizens did, then they would have been able to do much more. But I think it's still pretty remarkable what they were able to build and accomplish, even though they were being blocked. And I think a lot of that comes from the work that happened in the black church, and you mentioned that, like the black church provides humanity and dignity in ways that black Hattiesburgers couldn't find outside of that. And you also mentioned that the black Hattiesburg was a benefactor, the black church in Hattiesburg was a benefactor to different Hattiesburg institutions also. So could you speak a little bit more to that and its role in the life of black Hattiesburgers? Yeah, so the black church was central and um, African-American professional men held all the formal titles, but as we all know, women ran everything in the church. They were the community organizers, and when you really dig a little bit deeper into the church and some of the social records, it's just remarkable what the black women were doing to organize those churches in the communities. They were the ones that really made them run. You know, somebody's got to organize the pews and make sure the Bibles are there and cook meals and wash the robes and everything like that. But one of the really interesting things to me about the black churches that I did not know was the way that they worked together in the community. So we have different denominations and we all know, you know, our different histories of, you know, CME, AME, Methodist, etc., Baptist. But these churches, they were, they were all doing their own thing. They all had different organizations, but they, at various times, there were umbrella groups that were religious based groups, but that also contained the top six or seven black churches. By top, I mean the biggest. But these umbrella groups contained the, the biggest six or seven black churches in the, in the black community. And when they came together, they were able to do even more. So they were, um, there was one point in the 1930s where they start publishing a local newspaper. They also, uh, they held contests to see who could um, raise the most money. They also had uh, choir contests that they held to see who could who could win the most money for their church. And then members of these different organizations of, of the community, of the churches, along the different community organizations, and therefore worked across different denominations in order to promote racial up uplift and building infrastructure in their community. Um, so what has been the response of current residents of Hattiesburg or people who are descendants of residents of Hattiesburg to your work? And have you relied on some of the institutions that exist, that have existed for decades in Hattiesburg to spread um, 
can we exactly research what you're doing? Yeah, so I have not had a great deal of um, local engagement thus far besides emails. And so I have gotten a lot of emails from different people in the community, a pretty broad cross-section, actually. And, you know, so I lived there for, for an academic year, and I taught at Southern Miss. And when I did that, I was very much more in touch with um, things that were happening, even though people didn't always know who the heck I was. You know, I was in the churches, and then there's an old black um, USO center that's now a black history museum. And so, you know, I was there all the time, and I was around. So I was a little bit more connected then. But I'm going there in October, and I'm looking forward to that. The city is um, having quite a few events re related to the book, and so I'm really looking forward to that visit. Are they going to have the Mobile Street um, Fair? Yeah, it's the first Saturday every October. And it's, um, you know, just as I open up the book, it's, it's really hard to imagine that community thriving in the way that it once did, or at least existing in the way that it once did, because so much has been sort of left out. And I think that's pretty common for black communities across the South, um, especially after the movement. And the most prominent members of that community were allowed to move into other neighborhoods. They've really gone neglected, and the city has not put resources in to the neighborhood to maintain it. So your, your work also discusses some of the sexual violence that black women consistently faced in Hattiesburg. And when I was reading, I was thinking about Daniel McGuire's Dark End of the Street. And that doesn't really specifically talk about our focus on Hattiesburg, but it, there's a discussion of Hattiesburg in that work. And I was just wondering what other scholars or like scholarship you engaged with while you were writing the work. So, I mean, Tara Hunter's book was really essential to me. And, um, <clears throat> Oh, gosh, certainly Tiffany Gill as well. And I'm forgetting the other woman's name, but Cooking in Other Women's Kitchens, too. And, um, you know, honestly, Ann Moody helped a lot because you learn about the ways that, you know, sexual assault is not something that is well documented. Black women often couldn't even, you know, make accusations in public without fear of uh, repercussions happening. And so it's, it's pretty tricky to track that. But what you do is... Um, you know, obviously you read as much as you can, but in the oral histories, there are parts here and there, some of the black women that lived in Hattiesburg, and, um, you know, pairing those together with other oral histories from black women that lived across the South was very helpful to get a better understanding of that. Um, but then, as, as you said, you know, um, the first white man of convicting of, of convicted of raping a black woman in Hattiesburg, I believe, was 1965. So before that, it's just, it's, it's a lot of silence. And you just have to get a sense of what life actually looks like if you are a black woman um, working in the home of a white family, especially, and what that proximity might might put you at risk for. But it's you know something that I try to balance. You know, I can't make a lot of assumptions, but you're just trying to describe what black life is like. And I use the bits of scholarship available, but then also oral histories to do so. So, what do you hope that readers will gain from this? deep dive into understanding Hattiesburg? I mean, I think the, the primary thing is that most is that African-Americans were not merely just sort of sitting around letting things happen to them in the Jim Crow South. The histories of racial violence are absolutely real, of course, but there is so much more depth there in terms of what black life was like during the era of Jim Crow. 
one of the other things too is that you can never really understand Jim Crow if you don't understand the perspective of all actors in one place. Um, it wasn't just about black people. There were power dynamics there. And if you understand better the struggles of the white community that was largely in control, then you can you can better understand how things changed even within Jim Crow. And then I think, you know, the other one finally, at least for today, is that white Southerners have had so many more advantages in terms of resources from the federal government. And, you know, this is the most pro-Democrat, big D place in the United States of America. The white South would have been completely socialist in the 1930s if they could have just kept their resources to white folks. It was only really the 1960s after desegregation and African Americans gained access to the same resources that the South began to turn Republican. And so the way that white institutions and white families and white wealth has been supported and built throughout the 20th century fundamentally excluded African Americans. And I know that many people are interested in talking about concepts such as, as um, reparations, but it's not just rooted in slavery. These gaps in wealth are fundamental throughout the 1920s, 1930s, 1930s, or 1940s and beyond. And I think that's something that's really key to study is the way that white folks had access to resources in ways that African Americans just didn't and the lingering effects of those disparate accesses access um, today. Thank you. Yeah, I definitely think the work can help us better understand the social political conditions of the South and the entire country today. Thank you again for talking with me.